Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. If you don't know your hosts by now, shame on you, but I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. And first of all, I just wanted to thank you guys. You have been awesome. You've been heading over to our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com. You've been helping us out by buying stuff through Amazon. And just as a reminder, that Amazon widget's at the bottom left corner of our page. Anytime that you need to buy something, click that. Make your purchases as normal. It's free to you. Send us a small commission, and it helps out with uh, costs associated to the show. I wanted to start off this episode by playing House. I'm, of course, talking about House, the TV show. What I mean is, I'm going to tell you a story about a mysterious medical experience that I had, and I want you all to see if you can diagnose the problem. If you can, I'll be impressed, because the doctors definitely couldn't. About six years ago, I'm grinding out another day at work. I'm sitting in my boss's office. All of a sudden, the room just starts spinning. I'm not talking just a little dizziness. I'm talking like just drank a whole bottle of Jack spinning. Out of literally nowhere, I can't breathe. I get tunnel vision. I have no idea where I am. My eyes start rolling back, and I start to pass out. My boss can see something isn't right, so he starts to come towards me. He's like, Chris, Chris, you all right? And I catch myself before I completely faint. I get up and I I go to my cube and try to collect myself. But no matter what I do, I I can't get back to normal. My mind's racing. I have no idea what's going on. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm 21 years old and I just had a heart attack. So I just leave the office, don't even tell anybody, get in my car, and I go straight to the ER. Like, no joke, I thought I was dying. I get to the ER. They run me through all the tests, EKG, blood work, And they come up with nothing, no heart attack, no diabetes, couldn't figure it out. So finally, the genius doctor determines that I had an inner ear infection and he sends me home. And I'm thinking there's no way this all occurred from an inner ear infection. So now I'm really freaked out. I don't go to work for like a week. I go to at least five doctors. I'm running all types of tests and scans. No one knows what happened and... I'm starting to get worried it's going to happen again. So finally, after I logged probably 40 hours online trying to figure out what it was, I obviously come to my own conclusion. First, I went through a couple. I thought it was, you know, high iron in the blood because I eat a lot of fish and random stuff. I finally come to what I think is right. I go to the family doctor and I I just say to him, you know what, doc, this is what I think it is. And he, he looks at me and says, you know what, you're right. 
So what do you guys think it was? Well, if you guessed a panic attack, kudos to you. My brain literally hated work so much that it tried to self-destruct. I can joke about it now, but it was really a scary experience at the time. It's one that I eventually came to realize it's, it's extremely common. People deal with different anxiety issues all the time throughout life and stressful situations if you don't realize you're stressed out or things are creeping up on you. People are reluctant to talk about it because when something like this happens, you do feel kind of stupid. But chances are you know someone who has had or has panic attacks or some kind of anxiety disorder. And this is why when we got a chance to talk to this week's guest, who's an expert in the field, I was really excited. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Roach, you want to tell everybody a little bit more about it? Our guest on this episode is Rita Schulte. Rita is a licensed professional board certified counselor. She is in the process of publishing her book called Sifted as Wheat. And you can find her website at siftedaswheat.com. She is a counselor that deals with anxiety, panic disorders, and eating disorders. Please enjoy. I'm a licensed professional board certified counselor in the state of Virginia. I got my BS in psychology and my master's uh, in counseling from Liberty University in Lynchburg. I have a private practice here in Virginia with a couple of offices um, where I specialize in treating eating disorders, anxiety disorders, and depressive disorders, as well as issues of you know, grief and loss. I'm certified in critical incident stress management. Basically, just completed a book, which is currently in the publishing process. So I'm excited about that. I'm getting ready to uh, start a podcast uh, called Heartline and a weekly devotional that's going to be called Consider This. And I've got some really exciting guests lined up for that show. Dr. John Tran, I'm really excited about having him, and uh, Dr. Dina Cabrera from Ramuda Ranch. So, What prompted you to kind of go into psychology and to specialize in things like um, anxiety disorders and eating disorders, things like that? Well, I started, um, you know, an undergraduate degree in psychology, took a few years off, and then got a degree in interior design and decided then to go back to school and finish my psychology undergraduate degree which led to me getting a master's and then I started a you know private practice and the anxiety disorders um, were interesting to me because you know I'd suffered with uh, anxiety um, and panic for for a while and um, so that was interesting and then the eating disorders just kind of started being referred to me and I really was interested in that client population so I started you know, seeing a lot more patients, and that makes up, you know, a big bulk of my practice. That will actually be the uh, subject of my next book. You know, I don't know if John mentioned it or not, but I have also uh, dealt with some anxiety and panic disorder in the past, and I know it, it makes you really want to look into it and figure out what's going on because you, you really don't have any idea. So yeah. were you able to deal with it through your research and through learning more about it? I basically went and got some counseling. I ended up, um, there were just a lot of losses going on in my life. A lot of things were happening circumstantially. I went and got some counseling. I actually went on medication for a period of time and then was able to go off of it. So it interested me, but I really hadn't started, you know, my graduate work at that point. So I didn't really know a lot about it. And I think that's one of the things that people really need to know is that, you know, panic disorder is a really treatable thing. Um, most people feel weird and guilty, and so they don't get help, and they can go on for years without, you know, treating it. When a lot of it, if you know about it, 
knowledge is power, power is change. So I really want to educate my clients about panic and about anxiety, and that helps to dissipate some of the fear right there. There's about 40 million people that suffer from panic disorder alone, uh, and anxiety disorders, you know, often co-occur with other things like depressive disorder. So it's not uncommon for someone who um, has an anxiety disorder to have a mood disorder as well. Can you explain to our listeners briefly what a panic disorder actually is? Yeah, it's um, panic disorder is one of the disorders in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's a cluster group of anxiety disorders, which include uh, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, with or without agoraphobia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, which most people have heard of, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and then post-traumatic stress disorder. And why did these people develop panic disorders? There's really basically three reasons that people are prone or, you know, develop anxiety disorders. The first one is a genetic predisposition. So, in other words, if there's a history of anxiety or depressive disorder somewhere in your family, chances are you may be predisposed to develop an anxiety disorder. The second reason is going to be your family history. Many people that have anxiety disorders grow up in environments in which they feel unsafe. Life's unpredictable. The home is chaotic. Perhaps they never learn to regulate their emotional responses to stress. And then some people grow up in homes where the parents are overprotective or the parents have anxiety disorders. Um, and this kind of knowingly, unknowingly strengthens their sense of vulnerability or helplessness. And then finally, there's the stress vulnerability component. I explain that to my clients like this. If you can imagine you have two buckets, we'll call them stress buckets, bucket A and bucket B. Bucket A is half full of water. Bucket B is three-quarters full. But the water in both buckets represents the current life stressors that we all have. Now, if, you know, we introduce a rainstorm, and those buckets then start filling up. Okay, now remember, bucket A is half full, but it has enough reser requisite reservoir capacity in it to handle the stress. But remember, bucket B is already three-quarters full, so it lacks the requisite reservoir capacity to handle the additional stressors. And over time, as more and more stress is added, overflow occurs. That bucket's going to just, stuff's going to start spilling all over, over the place. And so basically, you know, your body's going to take a hit physiologically, emotionally, everything. And so if I'm already genetically predisposed for anxiety or panic, you know, it's pretty easy to see what happens. And then over time, the more I experience anxiety and panic, the reinforced those responses become. You know, that's where people develop agoraphobia to the point where they won't even go out of their house. Can you explain what happens during a panic attack? Basically, what happens in a panic attack is your brain receives a stimulus, then it interprets the meaning of that stimulus, and it usually interprets that as a danger. It selects a response, and it enlists the body to cooperate as needed. And when all this happens, chemicals begin being released through your bloodstream and your central nervous system, things like adrenaline and noradrenaline. We've all heard of that, fight-or-flight response. It primes this fear response for us. Okay, let's say you see a copperhead in your garden. A visual relay occurs to the prefrontal cortex of your brain. That's the information processing center. That organizes information and sends a signal to your limbic system, which is the emotional center of your brain. The amygdala is a tiny little almond-shaped group of nuclei deep within the medial temporal lobes, and they are activated and send out a danger signal, and your body responds with fight, flight, or freeze. When you see the snake, your, ba your brain has made an interpretation of danger, and your body cooperates with physiological changes, like increased heart rate, pulse rate, your muscles tense, increased respiration or holding of the breath, 
you might get dry mouth, sweaty palms. This is a situational appropriate response to danger. The problem with panic disorder sometimes is there isn't a snake. The attack can be situation specific, okay, that I see a snake, but oftentimes the attack comes out of the blue. And so you're left wondering, what the heck has happened to me? And your body overestimates a danger signal with no apparent visual clue. And that's where folks get tripped up. They don't have a clue as to why or when or what's going on, which only serves to make it more fearful for them. We have to help people understand what's really going on by evaluating, you know, their particular situation. Do you find that a lot of your clients describe the feeling of having a heart attack? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I had one person that had visited the ER five times thinking they were having a heart attack and nobody ever bothered to explain or educate them on panic. When I first started work, I had that same exact experience. I I literally thought I was having a a heart attack and ran to my boss's office and was going to tell him to call 911. But as I was standing like in his doorway, I finally realized that I wasn't dying. That caused me to look into the whole panic disorder and anxiety attack thing. Yeah, and it can be very frightening. You know, it's very frightening for people. You don't know how bad it can be until you've really experienced it. And people have all different kinds of of symptoms. I mean, for me, it was more almost like I was coming out of my own body. And it's very scary. And what drives that see is these chemicals that are pulsating through your central nervous system and your bloodstream that are giving you these feelings. And once you know that, that in and of itself can calm you down. That's kind of how I went about it. Like once I figured out that I really wasn't dying and I kept telling myself that, Mm -hmm. I was able to, you know, recognize when I was having a panic attack and kind of stave Mm -hmm. it off. Absolutely. So education is a big, huge piece of it. The other thing that's really important that I look for with people with anxiety or panic is what beliefs underline their fears. For example, let's say you have a fear of flying. You can get a panic attack just thinking about going to the airport. You know, I had a lady once that was just absolutely terrified and were a little panicked by just the thought of that. But what her, what her thoughts were telling her, what her beliefs were, were if I get on a plane, I know it will crash and I'll die. Or if I'm claustrophobic and I fear being trapped on the plane, you know, I tell myself I won't be able to get out. And so this loss of control becomes huge for people who suffer with panic disorder. They attach a meaning to it that becomes catastrophic. Say you you have a panic attack for the first time and you feel like you're on edge afterwards for a while. What are the steps that you recommend people take to start dealing with it and eventually get over it? And I guess that's another question is, is it possible to rid it from your life entirely? I think, you know, it's definitely possible. Again, it goes back to, you know, family history, genetics, how much stress you're under, those kinds of things. But panic is really something that people can manage and people can control. You know, they need to be educated about it. If it's really bad, seeing a counselor would be something they, they should do. Um, But what they can do in the immediate here and now is really learn about the breath because the breath is something that's huge in terms of reducing um, the symptoms of panic. Panic is driven by fear. So what that does is it revs up our sympathetic nervous system. The brakes to that is our parasympathetic nervous system. And so when we slow down our breath and learn to breathe diaphragmatically, we're actually kicking in our parasympathetic nervous system which calms us down. And so when you notice, I mean, and since both of you guys have experienced panic, you might think back, you know, how is my breath? Usually our breath becomes shallow, short, 
sometimes we're holding our breath. I have a client that when she just comes into the office, that you know, we, we, we start laughing about it now because she's catching herself doing it. So the breath is hugely important, learning how to breathe and practicing that. You know, I have my clients practicing it, you know, three or four times a day so that they're so familiar with it that when they start feeling anxiety coming on, it's much easier to, um, to deal with it when it's a one or a two than when it's already a nine or a ten. So once I feel those uh, physical sensations, the thoughts, the emotions, I need to notice and pay attention to what's going on in my physical body and begin to slow down that hyperarousal in my sympathetic nervous system by doing the breathing. Now, you had also mentioned medication earlier. Do you think mm-hmm. medication is a is the last option for panic disorder the first option? I mean, when do you start talking to your clients about you know seeking medication to help them out? Right. Well, that's a good question. It depends on how debilitating it is for them. For, for a lot of people I see, they are in such a place where it is impairing their functioning. And so at that point, I would refer them to a psychiatrist for evaluation for medication. They, you know, people can do it without medicine. They can do it with, um, I use um, cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure and response prevention to treat it. So in other words, um, by exposing people, see, what do people do when they fear something? What do people that are phobic about getting on an airplane do? They don't, they don't fly. Look at John Madden. He goes across country to all the games in a, a bus. So it's easy to avoid the feared situations, but that's actually the worst thing you can do for panic. It's exposing people, gradually exposing them to the feared situations or events and letting them realize that they're not going to die, they're not going to explode. It might feel uncomfortable, but the more they do it and the more they expose themselves to it, the more that anxiety is going to be manageable, the more they'll learn to sit with uncomfortable emotions, and then it'll go away. You know, I know that most medication that is prescribed for things like anxiety and depression deals with the levels of serotonin in the brain. And I read a book one time that said in the future that will be dispelled as a myth, that they'll realize that that's not true. Is there strong science backing that that actually is what happens? You you lack a level of serotonin in the brain? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question because there's a lot of really cool stuff going on with uh, brain neurobiology. It's a really hot topic right now. And it's giving us a lot more information um, on how these information processing systems work in the brain. Okay, is it serotonin? Is it a lack of dopamine? Is it, you know, this, is it that? But actually what I can tell you is that PET scans and SPEC scans that they're using now, which are able to measure cerebral blood flow um, and indirectly look at brain activity or brain metabolism, are actually showing that people that are prone to anxiety and depressive disorders, that area I was talking about, the limbic system, will actually light up because those areas of the brain are really overworking. So there's, there's, there's got to be a link there. The jury's out. There, you know, depending on who you read about, you know, or whose article you're reading is going to say, well, no, this is the worst thing. You've got to get off medicine. Oh, no, you've got to take medicine. I tell people, you need to, to do what's best for you. When your quality of life is debilitating to the point where you're not functioning or you're not going out of your house because of panic disorder, then you probably would want to consider taking some medication. When I took medication, I took it for eight months, and then I went off of it, and I was fine. So it doesn't mean that you're locked into taking it for the rest of your life. 
Some people might have to take it for the rest of their life. But, you know, I think oftentimes then people get anxious about that. Oh, my gosh, what's the medicine doing to me? Oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to be on this for the rest of my life. Right. So people with anxiety tend to think that way anyway, and they get anxious about, about that whole piece. But I do think there's some really exciting things going on um, neurobiologically that we're learning about the brain, about its neuropathways, and how we literally have carved out neuropathways in our brain by the repetitive learning processes of life. And what we found out is that the brain is very plastic. So that's really cool because it gives hope to healing for folks. You can actually retrain your brain and make new neuropathways, healthier neuropathways in your brain by learning some of these skills. So I think that offers people a lot of hope right there. I wanted also to ask, I know you do some work with eating disorders, and I wanted to kind uh-huh. of talk to you a little bit about that. Sure. What are the most common ones that you see and any advice that you could give to people suffering from them that might be listening? I treat a lot of people, well, it's kind of a, I I have people that are anorexic, which means that they restrict food, people who are bulimic, which means they binge and purge, and compulsive overeaters. So I have the whole gamut in my practice. It's a very interesting disorder in that there's really a whole lot of layers to it depending on what you know, which one we're talking about. There's also something, you know, in the DSM called the, uh, eating disorder not otherwise specified. So, in other words, you don't meet the criteria for anorexia or bulimia, but you've always had issues with food. I had a client like that, and, you know, basically she's, you know, she's walked in a, a huge measure of freedom. There's always been issues with food. I'm always on a diet. I'm always talking about my weight. I'm constantly ruminating about my body image. I have people with body image issues. So, you know, there's just a whole lot tied into this whole idea of eating disorders. Do you feel like those are usually solved or cured or at least dealt with through talking to someone, through counseling, as opposed to medication and things like that? Anorexia, you know, there's really no, you know, medication. You know, oftentimes the reason folks are given medication for those disorders is because of comorbid symptoms, meaning they would have an anxiety disorder or depressive disorder that we would treat. But, you know, eating disorder doesn't go away because you put somebody on a selective reuptake inhibitor. A lot of people end up having to go into treatment. I work with uh, Ramuda Ranch, which is a eating disorder facility in Arizona and here in Virginia. And sometimes people have to be, you know, go to inpatient treatment facilities to deal with it. So it's not, if you, if you know somebody or, or are concerned about somebody that has an eating disorder, definitely get them into counseling because... You know, I have a lot of young people, a lot of teens, and the earlier you get somebody into treatment, you know, the better the prognosis would be for them to get help. I wanted to switch topics real quick with you and talk to you about the book that you're publishing. Can you go ahead and give the listeners the name of the book? You know, just a brief synopsis of what the book's going to be about. Sure. The book is going to be entitled Sifted as Wheat, Finding Hope and Healing Through the Losses of Life. And it's really about how the losses of our lives impact us at the heart level. Um, millions of people today struggle with the catastrophic effects of loss. I mean, we just look around right now what's going on in uh, Egypt and war, terrorism, death, suicide. I just had a client in yesterday who was telling me about a 17-year-old boy who hung himself in his basement, mental illnesses, economic failure. All of these things are affecting people's hearts, but most people aren't paying attention to how they're affecting their hearts. And so... 
it became, for me, a real issue of interest because in my clinical practice, I started noticing that people suffering from a whole host of mental health disorders, whether it was an eating disorder, an anxiety disorder, a depressive disorder, they had at the core of the problem an unresolved or unidentified loss of some kind, something that they had never put words to, much less grieved. And it was really keeping them stuck in their pain. The book is, is, is about having people notice that. It's about having people, I coined a term, abstract loss, which means most people equate loss with death, but losses can be very abstract. Shattered dreams, unmet expectations, loss of trust, loss of hope, even the loss of faith, all those are abstract losses. And if we don't identify those and uncover those and uncover the roadblocks that keep us from grieving, and identifying them. Sooner or later, it seems like, you know, we hit a wall. And so, you know, this book makes a strong case for why we need to focus on matters of the heart when dealing with the losses of our lives and what the long-range benefits of doing so are. Part of the book is focusing on unfinished business of loss and then helping people to kind of begin to think about reinvesting their life and their heart after loss. You know, rekindling desire and passions that perhaps got buried or stuck on a shelf for decades and nobody ever bothered to take it down and dust it off. The story isn't finished in your life just because you've experienced loss. And so you need to start seeing a bigger picture of what life can be apart and aside from loss. Awesome. Well, I know I'm real interested to, to read this book when it comes out. And, uh, you know, hopefully once it is published and printed, you can send a, a couple signed copies over to us to give to our listeners. <laughs> oh, I'd be glad to. Awesome. I'd be glad to. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for being, uh, being on the uh, podcast today. Oh, it was my privilege. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. And as a reminder, I wanted to mention Rita's book again, Sifted as Wheat, and it deals with grief and loss issues. And you can send her questions and find more about her at her website, siftedaswheat.com. Everybody, make sure you tune in next week. Actually, on Sunday, we are going to have on Dan Goldie. And a lot of people requested that we have somebody who is in the financial world come on and talk about financial advice and the markets and their take on things. Dan is a CFA, which is a certified financial analyst. Believe me, it takes a while to earn that designation. Also a CFP. And he has a book out called The Investment Answer. He's got years of investment advice, and he worked with guys on Wall Street and all this. So... He's going to give some good advice and tell you guys a little bit about what to do and where he thinks the market's going and how to protect your nest egg because Lord knows we're all kind of worried about that. So make sure to tune in Sunday. We will see you then. Thanks. Thanks.